Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, March 6th, 2022, and my shows were all Ukraine all the time, practically. Well, what shows were that? I looked at Meet the Press, hosted by Chuck Todd, and I looked at State of the Union, hosted by Jake Tapper, and then, a few hours later, State of the Union, hosted by Jake Tapper once again. There were two episodes of the State of the Union today, because, because, just because, 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 because of the wonderful things Jake does. (laughs) Wow, Brendan. (laughs) I looked at... This week, which was hosted by George Stephanopoulos, I looked at Face the Nation, which was hosted by Margaret Brennan, who never takes vacation. (laughs) And I looked at Fox News Sunday, which was hosted by Shannon Bream. Uh, We've seen her before. Mm -hmm. I wonder when they're going to find their replacement. I don't know. I wonder when we're going to see Chris Wallace on CNN+. Plus. I did see an article, I think it was the New York Times, and there was some CNN marketing photos of chris wallace uh, you know in his chris wallace suit with his little red tie his, yeah his little tie and his um handkerchief in his pocket sitting at a table in front of a cnn plus you know logo step and repeat behind him and it's like whoa but i haven't heard a word from him <laughs> i mean it was just a photo so we'll see we'll see which one comes first So, Naomi, that takes us to quality questionable today. Did you have a quality or questionable moment? I did. I have a questionable moment. It's something that I saw on Fox News Sunday. Well, it started, I was like, oh, kind of quality. And then it quickly turned into, uh, no, this is purely questionable. So one of the things that I saw that happened this week, a news story that broke that I barely saw covered on any of the shows was the fact that there is a WNBA star, Brittany Griner, who is detained right now in Russia, has been detained for three weeks. She she was detained at the Russia, at a Russian airport, I think Moscow, because she had some like vape pens. She plays in Russia in the WNBA offseason. Uh-huh. And there's a chance that she is in prison for like 10 years. Like it's like it's insane. Not a great situation for her. And Fox News Sunday was the only show at the top of the show that even like mentioned her in any way. Take a listen to kind of this like first intro by Alexandria Hoff. She's a Fox News correspondent and she's kind of given like the state of Ukraine and Russia and stuff at the top of the show. And now an American is being held by Russia in a high-profile detention case. WNBA star Brittany Griner was arrested at a Moscow airport after Russian officials say they found vape cartridges that contained hashish oil in her luggage. Griner faces 10 years in a Russian prison. So I was like, okay, this is like, people should be talking about this. This is like not a great situation. It's not like the State Department had no idea until this week. Like, I'm, I'm hoping that they're working on it. So... I was, you know, I, I was impressed that it was mentioned. But then later in the panel, Jonathan Swan, he is a national political reporter for Axios. He's talking about how there is essentially conflicting policy priorities around climate change and all things Russia. And he's talking about how quickly European allies have kind of changed their tune on a lot of the Nord Stream 2 stuff. But he makes a reference to Griner that I thought was so unbecoming and so unethical and completely unnecessary. And it really left a bad taste in my mouth. Wow. This has happened on multiple fronts where the climate agenda runs into another agenda. In this, in this instance, it's a national security agenda. I'm old enough to remember a year ago, uh, I went to Kiev. I interviewed President Zelensky. I interviewed him again in the spring. He was pleading 
with the United States and the Germans to shut down the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I'm old enough to remember being told by the US and the Germans it couldn't be done, that it was already completed, that it was essential so that the US and the Germans could cooperate on climate change. And we've learned in the last two weeks, oh, actually, it could be done. And that you make choices. And these are competing priorities running headlong into each other. I will say I've been stunned at how European foreign policy has done a complete 180 in the last three weeks. If you told me that Germany had done all the things it's done, I would have said you were smoking whatever that hashish was that that <laughs> basketball player, poor basketball player has something been maybe a little stronger. caught with, something stronger than that. Wow, completely classless. Completely and completely unnecessary and just... It's so gross. I find it so grimy to use this WNBA player's plight, her very dire situation as a butt of a joke as you're talking about like policy priorities. Like, really? This is the kind of crap that like people think (laughs) has no collateral damage like right yes that that it's just like oh it's just like you know a few words and it's like no it's garbage like this that keeps us in like the 20th century around drug policy and (laughs) this country's like joke response to it just it really drove me crazy If, if if you hear this and don't feel like your skin is crawling it's like the same type of people who are like shilling cbd and are totally okay with our like prisons full of black men who sold marijuana like it's just like it's all the same kind of spectrum to me and i just i couldn't believe i heard it on the sunday morning shows like like nothing and everyone laughed wow that's awful awful i guess the highlight was that the show seemed to get it right but this this particular person on the panel did a poor job it didn't seem like it was like the well show that itself. and like there was no pushback it right. was just there like was just it was just totally yeah, yeah. accepted right so that was disappointing yeah. too brendan did you have a quality or questionable yeah i had a quality moment in jake tapper asking the question we all want to see asked multiple times not getting the answer we want to hear or really any answer whatsoever this is a, a pretty important interview jake tapper spoke with the head of the european union european commission president ursula von der leyen and he asked her about ukraine getting membership in the european union this is something that ukrainian president Zelensky has requested immediately and that the eu has said they are working on or considering and so jake tapper wanted to know okay well when is this going to happen no seriously when is this going to happen Here's that exchange, B1, A and B. President Zelensky is asking for immediate admission to the EU. His foreign minister tweeted, quote, historic times require big and historic decisions, unquote. Are you going to take such a historic step? And if so, how long will it take Ukraine to be admitted? Are we talking weeks, months, years? Well, indeed, nobody doubts that this brave Ukrainian people and the outstanding leadership of uh, President Zelensky, all fighting for our common values, that they belong to our European family. And with the application, President Zelensky set a process in motion. This process will take a due time. What's the earliest it could happen? This is hard to say because it depends, of course, uh, what the, the development on the ground. And of course, reforms have to be done, processes have to be set up. So there is a very clear path uh, that is described in our processes um, that, that belong to this big question. But at the moment being for us, the most important is to support Ukraine as much as possible in this existential fight against Russia. So this good for Jake Tapper for asking the important questions and asking them in a simple way. Are we talking days? Or no, he says, are we talking weeks, months, years? Please, like... Which time scale are we talking about? This is not like an exact science. I'm not asking you the exact day on the calendar. Just give me an idea of what we're talking about here. Nope, she she refuses. And then when he says, okay, well, what's the earliest it could happen? Nope, she has no information there either. Oh, it's a process, 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 process. Hello? I mean, can you imagine other situations where you're asking for timelines and the person you're talking to is refusing to give you even the slightest suggestion of what's being dealt with it is just oh, it makes my blood boil just give us an idea please well it makes me think <laughs> like 
if these were the standards that like the standard rigor in all interviews people wouldn't be surprised by it and would have answers at the ready yeah perhaps i mean i feel like i understand if von der Leyen is in this situation where she is having trouble getting everyone on board right and maybe there are people within the union that don't want the ukraine joined or you know there are a few countries that are in that process right now and it's been a a long-term process and maybe they're not going to be happy if ukraine jumps the line or whatever fine but just say listen here's the amount of time it took the last country to enter the eu from the beginning to end we're starting a little ways into ukraine's process because there were already some things being done and we're working to find out how we can expedite that as quickly as possible but honestly it takes fill in the blank years months weeks whatever just say it it's just so unacceptable to not have i mean of course you're going to be asked this question how can you not have a semblance of some answer beyond oh it's a process it's going to take a long time we stand with them we're helping them that's just giving lip service to the whole situation and it's insulting. It's frankly insulting. So quality for Jake Tapper, questionable for President von der Leyen. All right, Naomi. Well, that takes us to our main segments. I'm assuming that you're going to be speaking about Ukraine as there was very little else discussed, practically nothing else discussed on my shows. Well, yes, I'm talking about Ukraine and the Russia escalation. Although some of my shows did talk about the January 6th findings not one of mine talked about that. Yeah, there was a little bit of that. But what I wanted to talk about today is the no-fly zone that has been requested, has been pleaded by President Zelensky in, in, from the Ukraine, who is begging, essentially, Western allies to establish a no-fly zone. Now, I've seen a lot of coverage around this and a lot of interviews on this throughout the week and i've seen even some media criticisms about like why are we still talking about this so much like does do news organizations want us to establish a no-fly zone like this is it's kind of like a thirsty story right like do, do, do news organizations want this escalation to get worse or more involved for like better coverage and i don't know if i necessarily agree with that because it is newsworthy Zelensky is asking for this and western allies nato they are saying no right but what i noticed is that i felt like we were hearing very kind of political responses in a lot of the shows and i felt like there wasn't anyone quite explaining what it means what the request is um there was just a lot of kind of requests for individual political commentary on it as opposed to what are these implications right so a I, reasonable consideration rather than just what do you think of this right and it got me thinking of kind of the war in iraq and <laughs> when you look back and see the news coverage of it just how poor the analysis was on whether or not we should be going in there the shady intelligence or or really just kind of the rigor of kind of that decision in the news was really lacking. And so it felt kind of akin to that as talking about it does not mean we're talking about it well. And, and that's kind of really what I wanted to explore today. Sounds good. So I wanted to share a few responses from different politicians, from administration officials, and then from an expert. So the first one is from Marco Rubio. He was on this week. Senator Marco Rubio is a Republican senator from Florida. He is also the vice chair of the Intelligence Committee. In general, like, he's kind of war hawkish. Like, he's all about intervening and, you know, America being a global superpower and... Being the, the the police force of the of the globe, but even he does not want a no fly zone. Take a listen to this conversation with him and George Stephanopoulos. You were on that Zoom yesterday with President Zelensky. Are you and your colleagues now more open to a no fly zone? You know the the look. 
I know fly zone has become a catchphrase. I'm not sure a lot of people fully understand what that means. That means flying AWACS 24 hours a day. That means the willingness to shoot down and engage Russian airplanes in the sky. That means, frankly, you can't put those planes up there unless you're willing to knock out the anti-aircraft uh, systems that the Russians have deployed, and not just in Ukraine, but in Russia and also in, in, in Belarus. So basically, a no-fly zone, it, uh, if people understood what it means, it means World War III. It means starting World War III. So very stark assessment there from Marco Rubio. Totally. Like, even Marco Rubio... The usual Warhawk is like, absolutely not. This is a bad idea. Take a listen to kind of very similar language. I think maybe a little bit more empathetic to Zelensky. This is Chris Murphy on Fox News Sunday. He's a Democratic senator from Connecticut. Both she and President Zelensky, and I understand you were on the call with him yesterday. What they want is a no-fly zone. Here's one of his impassioned pleas about that this week. I said, if you cannot shut the sky now, then give us the timeline. When will you do it? If you now cannot uh, provide the timeline, tell us how many people have to die. Um, you had a tweet this week said, let's just be clear what that is. The U.S. and Russia at war. It's a bad idea and Congress would never authorize it. Is there any point at which your calculation on that would change? No, I think we need to be clear that we are not going to go to war with Russia. That would be the beginning of World War Three. It would drag all of Europe into a much broader war. But if I were President Zelensky, I would be asking for a no-fly zone. Um, the problem is there is no such thing as a no-fly zone over Ukraine. If the United States put planes in the air, we would immediately be shooting at Russian planes. They would be shooting at us. We would be at war. And soon, Russia will likely be able to move into Ukraine their own air defense systems, being able to shoot missiles at uh, pilots who are flying above. So I get why President Zelensky is pressing on a no-fly zone. And I think we should answer many of his other calls for additional defensive equipment, for more humanitarian assistance. Um, I don't think it's in our interest, the interest of Europe, uh, to have the United States and Russia, the two world's biggest, um, most equipped nuclear superpowers, going to war directly against each other. So interesting here, right? Senator Murphy's like, of course, Zelensky's asking for a no-fly zone that like as the president of this country that is kind of experiencing this violence from Russia, like he's has every right <laughs> to to ask for this. But in terms of the interests of the United States, like there's no way we can authorize this. Congress is never going to do that. And we can do we can try to do other things. So, you know, and other things that Zelensky specifically asked for. Correct. Correct. So, you know, interesting, like very bipartisan agreement here that a no fly zone is not on the cards, you know, is not on the uh, is not on the table for America to do. Yeah, it's interesting that I feel like both of these interviews, it was kind of the guest who did the job of trying to educate the audience on what this this phrase means no fly zone this wasn't something that it seemed was set up by the hosts and clarified by the hosts but the guests saying look your audience needs to know what we're talking about here no fly zone sounds almost like oh well you you just shut down the airspace right and we've done that right in the u.s after 9-11 the airspace was shut down you know, there have been various situations where we've done that, where we need to do that. That's not what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about engaging Russian aircraft and dangerous, dangerous situations. So I appreciate it, but I, I'm also kind of like, why aren't these shows doing a better job of defining this terminology? Right, exactly. And like, what is the U.S. or NATO allies, their role in enforcing a no-fly zone, right? Yeah, yeah. Is kind of another key piece. And giving kind of a, a full understanding as to what is being requested of us and why there's such a firm line that American leaders want to, will not accept. I also wanted to show an example of this same kind of response of, no, we can't do this from the administration. This is Anthony Blinken on Face the Nation. Anthony Blinken, of course, is our Secretary of State. NATO has said 
none of its 30 members are willing to set up a no-fly zone. President Biden has been very clear he has no interest in that or combat troops. But what more can the United States do here if, for instance, the Polish government, a NATO member, wants to send fighter jets? Does that get a green light from the U.S., or are you afraid that that will escalate tension? No, that, that, that gets a green light. In fact, we're talking uh, with uh, our Polish friends right now about what we might be able to do to backfill uh, their needs if, in fact, they choose to provide these fighter jets to, to the Ukrainians. Uh, what could we do? How can we help to make sure that uh, they get something to backfill the planes that they're handing over to, to the Ukrainians? We're in very active discussions with them about that. Look, I've been in, in, in Europe for the last couple of days working closely, as always, with our allies and partners at NATO, uh, the European Union, uh, the G7 countries, and all of us together are continuing to take steps to increase the pressure uh, on Russia through uh, additional sanctions, all of which are very actively under discussion and will be implemented in the, uh, in the coming days, as well as uh, taking further steps to give uh, the Ukrainians um, what they need to defend themselves against the Russian aggression. So here we hear Secretary Blinken say, we're not willing to do that, but there are other very clear things we're exploring, including, you know, this getting them more weapons and getting them support through other countries and kind of refilling weapons to those countries that are supporting them, kind of like a three-way deal, essentially. Right. So, you know, there's specifics here that are being discussed. It's not like everyone is saying, no, no way, and then having nothing else to say. Like, there is more to say. But again, there isn't really kind of like a full conversation as to what is being requested and why. Or even... To, to American leaders, they there were questions to the Ukrainian ambassador. Well, and also it seems to me what's missing is description of previous no-fly zones that have been put in place and how those were different situations and therefore... We should not use those as proxies for understanding the U.S.'s options in this in this particular case with Ukraine. Yeah, no historical context whatsoever or, you know, international agreements or other examples of when it worked and when it didn't. Which gets me to the interview with Kurt Volker on Face the Nation. Now, Kurt Volker was the former U.S. envoy to Ukraine and former U.S. ambassador to NATO. And under which administration? Under Trump. Okay. Well, at least when he was ambassador to NATO. I don't know when he was an envoy to Ukraine. But Trump came up in some ways in this interview, and he was not the Trump apologist at all. But he was on because he's actually trying to raise support for a no-fly zone, which I thought was very interesting. I haven't seen a lot of people do that. But with very clear structure and limits in place, kind of putting the case that the U.S. and Western allies have a humanitarian role to play. And if it's structured appropriately, it could be possible. You've been arguing for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. NATO says that's off the table. The United States, no way, no how, no combat troops. Uh, because President Biden says this would trigger World War III. Why is he wrong? Well, I think there are ways to do this that uh, mitigate those risks. It doesn't eliminate the risk, but it, it mitigates the risk of direct conflict with Russia. Uh, first off, I think we have to recognize that the civilian casualties and the horrific scenes that we just saw are going to get worse. They're not going to get better. There's going to be massive airstrikes against Kyiv, against other cities, and it's going to be absolutely devastating. So if we can prevent that from a humanitarian point of view, I think we, we need to try. And the way to do this that I would recommend is we make clear the humanitarian purposes. We limit the scope geographically to Kyiv and Western Ukraine, so we're not getting close to Russian borders. We make clear that we will only fire if fired upon on any ground targets. We are not there to strike anything. We make clear to the Russian military that we will not strike their aircraft or their helicopters as long as they stay outside the zone. Mm -hmm. And then there are rules of engagement that our Air Force and others are very good at of escorting people out of the zone without fire if they're not fired upon. And I think we apply all of those things in order to try to create a safe space for the civilians. So this gets into a more detailed understanding of what it might actually look like, what the rules of engagement would be. Seems a little complicated, but maybe a, a, a limited scope is something that could be implemented, it sounds like. Right. And it 
I, and I agree with you, Brendan. It seems very complicated. It seems something that would be hard to convince people that would convince, you know, Congress specifically right. that we would stay within those parameters. Yes. But I find the conversation worthwhile, right? I find this kind of explanation as to the civilian need compelling. And at least someone is trying to explain like, hey, maybe we should do this in this kind of way if we're truly concerned about like civilian casualty loss. Right. Margaret Brennan has a follow up where she says like, hey, like no one else is really agreeing with you. Why? Like, why even try this? Other former ambassadors to NATO have made the public argument that this is unrealistic because you would have to take out Russian systems, not only in Ukraine, but long range ones inside Russia. You go to war like this. You don't do that because that does bring us directly into the fight. Russia does not want us in the fight. And I think we are letting Putin get inside our heads and deter us from doing things to protect civilians rather than taking into account that he does not want the U.S. or other countries supporting Ukraine. I mean, I just, again, found it a little interesting saying, like, we should not be using the value system of Putin to determine exactly what our responses responses and responsibility should be. So I I raise this again, not because I agree with Kurt Volker in any way. Yes, very important to say that. Um, And not because I, you know, I think the administration's being weak or NATO isn't strong enough or, or any of those things. It seems like there is a united front with NATO partners to help the Ukrainians as much as possible with weapons, with, you know, refugee support, you know, what have you. But I just think we should be pushing news organizations to explain things better and and give us the context as to to be able to understand and analyze the decisions that the administration is making so we can as like sub, you know constituents properly analyze and f- come to some ag- like conclusion as to whether or not we think they're on the right track right and i think that's what's missing there's been so much about kind of the need and and the violence growing and all and you know the they're all newsworthy and valid but this has kind of been this growing story all week and i just felt like all the questions have been the same and no one has been really kind of explaining why ukrainians need this from western allies and why they can't do it themselves or you know what is the threshold where maybe the administration will reevaluate this or you know is there some type of analysis of doing this in certain parts of ukraine versus others you know volker talks about like western ukraine but not necessarily eastern ukraine where the russians have a stronger footprint so i just think it's it's worth having that kind of meteor conversation because if things were to get drastically worse which a lot of people are saying is probably likely and the civilian loss is more. And then there are more voices like Volker who are saying we need to do this no-fly zone. Like we as constituents don't have like the foundational knowledge to say, yes, that does make sense. Or no, it still doesn't make sense. Yeah. Which is a real, it's like news organizations not doing their due diligence, right? And setting, like you said, setting up the parameters of the debate so we even know what we're talking about. Right. Brendan, what did you notice on your shows? So I wanted to talk, uh, this is actually a great introduction because it leads straight into my first example of my segment. And my segment is about kind of the armchair politician. You know, we've heard this, the, the armchair quarterback or the armchair general, you know, people who are kind of sitting back commenting on the difficult decisions and real world exploits of the people in charge who are well, in the game right yeah well Dak shepherd has a podcast called armchair expert oh is that right does he obviously that's the armchair blank has been around well Correct. before that podcast. i understand that yes so i'm going to take a look at some political leaders and commentators on the shows criticizing and suggesting solutions that maybe aren't fully thought through or often and then sometimes even being let off the hook by the host for not being clear. So the first example is from Meet the Press. This is Senator Joe Manchin, Democratic senator from the state of West Virginia, on with Chuck Todd talking about, believe it or not, no-fly zones. 
So let's hear what Joe Manchin has to say about this. Where do you want to stop? So what does that mean for you? Are you right now... Would you support a no-fly zone? I support, Would you support I, doing this, which could trigger a wider I conflict? I understand that, but right now you don't signal to your to the nemesis of Putin. This is a Putin's war. This is not the Russian people's war. This is Putin's war and his quest for whatever it may be. But to take anything off the table thinking we might not be able to use things because we've already taken them off the table is wrong. I would take nothing off the table, but I would let be very clear that we're going to support the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian president and this government every way humanly possible. Zelensky was very clear. He says, we don't need you to fight our fight. We don't need you to fly our planes or fly your planes into our war zone. Mm -hmm. We need the planes that we can fly ourselves, and we have them on the border. So, okay, Manchin is criticizing us, clearly stating we don't want to do a no-fly zone, but he's not advocating for a no-fly zone, is he? He's kind of having it both ways. He's having his criticism, and he's managing to say... That doesn't mean that I support a no-fly zone. It's like, come on, buddy. I mean, this is typical mansion. Right. This is. This sounds like he did on every other topic related to Build Back Better. Yep. Okay, you state your principle, which is in opposition to the administration, but then you're very unclear about the specifics or what you would actually do or what your recommendation is. Very frustrating. And unfortunately, Chuck Todd lets him get out of this without nailing him down to say, are you for it or not? Yes or no? Because the, the request has been made. Are we supposed to ignore Zelensky's request and not say anything? I don't know. Unclear. Now, later on Meet the Press, there is some clarity, and I want to give the show credit, along with State of the Union, for having some experts on, not just politicians, and not just their own reporters. So this is a panel discussion I guess I shouldn't call it a panel. This is a discussion with two other people. This is with Admiral James Stavridis. He's the former NATO Supreme Allied Commander and with Fiona Hill, who is President Trump's chief advisor on Russia. I think she was also an advisor during Obama's administration, too. And she had some comments about Trump and Russia as it related to Trump's impeachments, various impeachments. But in this clip, you'll hear from Admiral Stavridis, and he is addressing this no-fly zone issue in a different way, Naomi, than, than you had showcased, but still being, I think, pretty specific about it. All right, we have the map up. Logistically, how doable is this? And, and why are so many folks in the United States adamant, adamant about not even attempting it? <clears throat> Let me start with the back end, because I think it's really the important question. It's, it's quite obvious that if we put U.S. NATO jets in the air enforcing a no-fly zone, they'll be going nose-to-nose with Russian fighter aircraft. Um, down that path, the potential for miscalculation in a war between NATO and Russia and a war between Russia and the United States rises significantly. Look, I implemented a no-fly zone. I know how to do this. I did it in Libya in 2011. Can we do it? Sure. Should we? Not yet. But final point, Chuck, what we ought to do is give the Ukrainians the ability to create a no-fly zone, more stingers, more missiles that can go higher than stingers, and above all, consummate this fighter deal, get those MiG-29s in their hands. Do our NATO, do our NATO allies that have these <laughs> Russian jets have enough of them to give the Ukrainians uh, a chance at air superiority? Yes. And, and, wow. and by the way, take a look at NATO combat aircraft. We have over 25,000 Russian combat aircraft, around 5,000. We outnumber them five wow. to one as an alliance. Hey, we outspend them yeah. 15 to one. We outnumber them in ground troops four to one. He's not going to cross a NATO border in anger, but we ought to do all that we can to support the Ukrainians. So it's interesting that Admiral Stavridis is the one that has this statement that I feel like we should be hearing from the administration, which is we're not going to create a no-fly zone. We are going to help give Ukraine the ability to create their own. That's a very clear, crisp statement of the situation that I think checks all the boxes of people who want to see this thing created, but might also be worried about starting World War III. 
Yeah, I thought also the point around like which weapons w- would be most useful right now and kind right. of prioritizing that is also another really important detail. Exactly, exactly. So a lot of Republicans and Democrats this week have been critical of the United States continuing to take Russian oil, to purchase oil from Russia. I think Russian oil accounts for 8 to 10% of the oil that we use in the United States in Europe, it's something like 40% of their oil is dependent, is coming from Russia. And so understandably, with the United States and Europe trying to be in lockstep on most everything, clearly it's easier for us to do this than for Europe to do this. The administration has been working with Europe to try to make this happen. We heard from Blinken talking about it and not quite going there. But Nonetheless, there was lots of criticism of the administration for not doing this. Now, one of the voices that we heard from the Republican side was Nikki Haley. She is the former ambassador to the U.N. under Donald Trump. And you'll hear her in at the end of this clip making that same charge and that same criticism. But you'll hear her also defending the Trump administration and their handling of Russia throughout her entire interview. Chuck Todd pushed back with this pretty critical question. Take a listen. Ambassador, you you sort of imply that it was Biden's weakness on Afghanistan, but I mean, the Trump administration, Trump personally tried to roll back sanctions on Russia in 2017. He did. They tried to lobby Congress to weaken Russian sanctions in legislation in 2017. He tried to remove sanction on a Russian oligarch company in 2018 delayed chemical weapons sanctions that were required by law against Russia, and let's not forget holding Ukrainian military aid hostage for a political stunt. How did, you don't think any of those things sent a message to Vladimir Putin that America is divided, the West is divided, and he can get away with whatever he wants? You said it in every one of those things. You kept saying he tried. All I know is what he did. And I was personally there at the United Nations when he got out of the Iran deal, when he sanctioned Putin, when he expelled diplomats, when he refused Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So I watched what he did. He did more. He did stronger things against Russia than Republican or Democrat presidents before him. I mean, this was something that Putin knew not to mess with the United States. Putin needs to know that again. We need to start standing up. Why are we even ho-humming around the fact that we're still taking Russian oil? Why are we doing that? Why would we take money from from evil dictators? You never sleep with the devil because then the devil owns you. The Europeans are finding that out right now. We need to be smarter than that. First, I want to give Chuck Todd credit here for having specific examples of Trump's actions on Russia and not his rhetoric on Russia, because so often criticism of Trump related to Russia has to do with Trump calling Putin a genius or using such and such terms. But Chuck Todd focused on the things that the administration tried to do, the things that it actually did do, and the results of some of that. That's a really phenomenal point, Brendan. And I think I would... Definitely say that's not something I would have noticed, but you're right. Like every conversation I've heard, especially on this week with the panels and Chris Christie and George Stephanopoulos, like it's always been like, you know, he called them shrewd and smart and strong or, you know, and it's just like, right. okay, Trump says a lot of things about a lot of people, but he also did a lot of things when he was president that is even more questionable. Exactly. Exactly. And and nowhere did, it's not only that Chuck Todd says things other than that, he doesn't even mention those words. He doesn't, he's like, I'm not going to get into the rhetoric, right? That's not important. What's important is what was actually done or attempted by the administration and, and done as well. But pushing back on Nikki Haley, we don't hear him push back really that much at the end of this. Now, that was a pushback. The initial, you know, we started with the follow up that Chuck Todd brought there. And then the, the conversation basically ends. But Chuck Todd comes back to it with his expert panel. And here is now Fiona Hill, who, remember, was President Trump's chief advisor on Russia. And he asks Hill about that answer from Nikki Haley. I've never heard it put quite this way, that Trump's actions, which led to Trump's first impeachment, sent a message to Putin that Ukraine was a plaything, 
that we weren't really serious about protecting it, and therefore he could probably get away with doing what he wanted in Ukraine. UK. Fiona Hill, I want to start very quickly. I want you to respond to uh, Ambassador Haley and in what she said about the Trump administration's record on, on Russian sanctions. She kept saying, well, you noted he tried. How would you describe his efforts when it comes to punishing Russia versus the administration's? Well, certainly there was an awful lot done by the administration, also by Congress and by um, Ambassador Haley herself at the United Nations. But I think that just the one point that sums everything up that you yourself touched on is that President Trump, at a pretty critical period, withheld military assistance to Ukraine that was desperate for us at that particular juncture, basically to get Volodymyr Zelensky to do him a personal favour. And what message does that send to Putin? Well, that sends a message to Putin that Ukraine is a plaything. Uh, for him, for himself as well, and for the United States, and that nobody's really serious about uh, protecting Ukraine. And that was ultimately a sign of weakness. It's our political divisions, mm-hmm. our partisan infighting, which right. was on full display there, that Putin, I think, is quite shocked now that we've got some collective action together. Yeah, this is an interesting comment. It has me thinking about that, t- you know, this topic a little bit, which we discussed last week, which was exploring why President Putin was doing this invasion now rather than when Trump was in office and possibly more lenient, sympathetic to what Putin wanted. So I don't, they kind of conflict with some of those things that we, that we heard, but I think there is something to be said around the changing impression of what the West or the U.S. would be willing to do for Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. And now, you know, speaking about Trump, Trump is still out there. He's still talking, and this wasn't directly brought up on the Sunday shows, but I thought it was important to note when we're talking about kind of off-the-wall proposals of how to solve this crisis, Donald Trump himself presented one of these proposals yesterday during a speech, an 84-minute speech in New Orleans, where he was talking to GOP's top donors. And I'm going to read to you a little bit of what he said as reported in the Washington Post, a story by Josh Dossie with the headline, Trump muses on war with Russia and praises Kim Jong-un. This is how the article begins. Former President Donald Trump amused Saturday to the GOP's top donors that the United States should label its F-22 planes with the Chinese flag and, quote, bomb the shit out of Russia. And then now this is a quote from Trump. And then we say, China did it. We didn't do it. China did it. And then they start fighting with each other, and we sit back and watch. End quote. He said, of labeling U.S. military planes with Chinese flags and bombing Russia, which was met with laughter from the crowd of donors, according to a recording of the speech obtained by the Post. Perfect example, thankfully, of an armchair commentary on the situation. Yeah, I mean, I feel like so many times these armchair armchair commentary, they're, they're full of hot takes that are meant to get a reaction out of people. Yeah. And and I don't know. I just like, I don't have the time for that kind of shit that I'm yeah. just like. They're just full of bluster, right? Yeah, just like, stop wasting my freaking time, please. Yeah, truly. But all of this, all these hot takes and all of the examples that we were talking about of how Trump dealt with Russia, how we're dealing with Russia, and how past administrations dealt with Russia, all of that is seen and seen by Putin and shapes his thinking, as Fiona Hill was noting. And I want to end my segment here by giving tons of credit to Jake Tapper for how he ended his show. And he ended it with the type of aside that we've come to know Jake Tapper for, but actually an aside that was deeper, more thoroughly researched, and frankly, I think should have started the show rather than ending the second hour of his, I think it was the second hour of his show. I don't know, maybe it was the first hour. But it definitely ended one of those hours (laughs) rather than starting it. And this is a detailed accounting of various U.S. presidents' interactions with and relations with Russian President Putin. Here is a little bit of that. The tragedy and Russian military barbarism unfolding before our eyes in Ukraine is horrifying, and the road to it was partly paved 
with two decades of misplaced optimism, appeasement, and Western leaders too eager to look the other way when it came to Vladimir Putin. While born from, no doubt, a well-intentioned desire to welcome Russia into the global community, that desire seemed to often block out the obvious warning signs. One of Putin's first actions as president in early 2000 was to level the Chechen capital city of Grozny. So much so that the UN was reportedly still calling it the most destroyed city on earth years later. Thousands of civilians were killed. And how did the U.S. respond? With stern warnings and a friendly presidential summit. I think that uh, the United States can, can do business with this man. What I have seen of him so far <clears throat> indicates to me that he's capable of being a very strong and effective and straightforward leader. President Clinton was the first American leader to see a potential partner in Putin, but he was far from the last. I looked the man in the eye. I found it to be very straightforward and trustworthy. I was able to um, get a sense of his soul. Amid warnings from the likes of Senator John McCain and Gary Kasparov that Putin could simply not be trusted, President Bush nonetheless pushed on for a new beginning with Russia, despite Grozny. Despite the 2004 poisoning of pro-Western Ukrainian presidential candidate Viktor Yushchenko, who survived the poisoning and suspected the Kremlin was to blame. Despite the 2006 death by radiation poisoning of Putin critic Alexander Litvinenko. And Tapper goes on and on from there through multiple examples, including the annexation of Crimea and Putin receiving very little in the way of punishment retribution, or real impact whatsoever. So kudos to Jake Tapper for pulling this all together and the team finding these clips and hearing these voices of Clinton and George W. Bush just leading us down this pretty dangerous path with President Putin that has led us to where we are today. I would have liked to seen it not necessarily in Tapper's like editorial segment at the end but again at the beginning to set the stage yeah and i was just about to say that like it's these are factual things that happen you could do it at the top of the show to help people understand like this is a geopolitical foe of decades right? right as romney called putin 10 years ago and so that's why sometimes these kind of like closing segment commentaries are kind of confusing because people put a lot of reporting in it and you can't always take it at like you have to kind of split apart the facts from the commentary. Right. Well, which it, is unnecessary. One thing that or it, unfortunate, I should one say. One thing that it makes me think of is there is another show on CNN that comes literally directly after this one that begins with this type of stage setting commentary. And that is Fareed Zakaria's GPS that starts its show with this type of like, I forget what he calls it, like a notebook or, you know, here's my, there's some sort of branded term for it, but it does begin the conversation and there's value to that, especially when you're dealing with world affairs that can be very complicated for, for an audience. But again, kudos to Jake Tapper for having it on the show at all and reminding everyone that there, you know, we talked a lot last week about the history of Ukraine and the situation of the U.S. with Ukraine. But here, this is another dimension of that, the history with President Putin. All right, Naomi, well, that's all I have to talk about today. Do we have a dialogue challenge or is there anything we want to wrap wrap this up with? I do want to note, actually, by the way, that between our last show and this show, there's one thing we have not mentioned, which happened, and that is the State of the Union. It was barely talked about last week barely talked about this week often the biggest story of its time whenever it happens not right now it's true i mean it was barely talked about the morning after (laughs) it's not even like it was newsworthy 12 hours later yeah and you know like you say that's partly because of the speech as well the speech didn't have lots of newness in it right i mean there was a lot of new stuff that came out of that speech they could have put more policy, you know, surprises or developments in there. They, they chose not to do that. They chose to mention things that are not going to pass in Congress. So also, again, not the most newsworthy focus. In terms of dialogue challenge, I think 
I don't know. It has me thinking kind of like the attention economy. Like, who are the voices that you hear from that are just giving really lame hot takes? And is it really worth your time? Or, you know, what are the things that you think are explaining you something and maybe aren't really explaining you much? They're just kind of repeating what you already know, but not necessarily explaining things. Like, just really trying to understand, like, if you're getting value from the voices, the thought leaders that kind of surround your news consumption or even just your work. That's interesting. You know, I I think that's definitely worth talking about and thinking about. And you actually made me think of one thing as it relates to the no-fly zone example here, which is, and I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but it's the the kind of like sandwich instruction test, which is... You have. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, it's very easy to say, oh, you know, go go make a sandwich. But when you have to like, and this happened to me in sixth grade, I don't know why, I have no idea why it even happened. I don't even know what, I think the exact lesson was of like how difficult it is to break down things into their little bits and pieces. It was about like, how would you describe to somebody how to make a sandwich who had never done it before? And you'd have to talk about all the different parts and, you know, oh, now you have to open a drawer and then look for a knife and then grab the knife and lift it up and then put it down. And then like all these little pieces that it would take to like essentially program a machine to to make a sandwich. There's so many different parts that it would take. And yet we talk about things like a no-fly zone without taking a step back and saying, well, how would that actually be implemented, right? What are the steps that would need to be taken for that to occur? Clearly it's occurred in the past, but what does it mean for it to happen? And I think we talk about a lot of things in politics without truly understanding what the hell we're talking about because we haven't gone that level to, you know, make the sandwich, to to fully understand all the pieces that would need to happen for your vision to, to occur, which is maybe why... <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of like how hard it is to pass legislation like the Affordable Care Act or, you know, make rea- uh, reality the phrase like affordable health care or Medicare for all or or for Republicans, for example, to come up with an alternative to ACA, which they could never pass even when they had majorities. Right. Because it's very hard to actually put the words down on the paper. All right. That's a long thing to say, but basically a long way to say try to find those voices that are or find that information that is actually describing how to make the sandwich truly enriching you if there are any new voices or people that you find particularly valuable we'd love to hear about them you can email us at podcast at polylog.com you can always tweet at me at soto naomi underscore you can tweet at the show at polylogcast and you can tweet at me at beast thanks everyone and we'll talk with you next week bye bye